Welcome to Copyright Clearance and his podcast series. I'm Christopher Kinnealy for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, January 18th, 2019. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, who joins me, as always, from PW's editorial offices in New York City. Welcome back, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So greetings and our compliments to Andrew. A few weeks back on this very program, you predicted that 2018 trade book sales were likely to rise slightly over 2017's numbers and that the gain would be driven by some big, and I mean big, bestsellers. Well, this week, MPD BookScan, which gathers point-of-sale book data from about 16,000 locations around the U.S., representing nearly 85% of the trade, has confirmed your hunch. Yeah, well, you know, I wish I could take credit for for that prediction, but I think it was pretty clear to anybody who was following the numbers this year. And as expected, indeed, there was modest growth for publishers. Uh, We talked a bit about it last week. But yes, in its release this week, MPD specifically pointed out what we did. And that's what, as I said, was pretty apparent to book industry watchers, the dominant trend for the year. 2018 was that the biggest bestsellers made up a bigger slice of the pie than in years past. In fact, five titles sold more than a million copies this year compared to only two in 2017. And December sales were especially top heavy with bestsellers, which excelled. Unfortunately, as we also discussed, uh, that meant that mid-list sales sort of suffered. So uh, year-over-year sales for the top 100 titles increased 21% in December of 2018, but sales of titles ranked between 100 and 1,000 declined 3%, said MPD's Krista McLean. And I think that's just a fascinating stat, which really sort of neatly sums up where publishing is these days. All right, then, Andrew, staying with industry numbers, the Association of American Publishers released its Statshot report this week for book sales through November 2018. Any surprises there? No, not really. You know, with the holiday sales period, we noted a sense of sort of deja vu in that sales uh, started slowly and then hit big to sort of pull into positive territory. And that was just as they did in 2017. And with one month of sales data still to come from AAP this year, or for 2018, I should say, uh, we're pretty much in the same boat. Sales in the first 11 months of 2018 were just about flat with the same period a year ago. Uh, Actually, they're up about 0.3% through November over 2017. And adult trade sales included Michelle Obama, which had a solid November uh, and a very big December as well. Uh, And those numbers, actually, it was Michelle Obama that helped take sales for November up almost 20% over 2017. So that helps us make a point that I think we've made again and again on this podcast about how big books could really change industry sales data and really change the narrative, too. A slight sales dip in the coverage in the media is all about the declining book business, right? But you add in that one blockbuster, that one Michelle Obama, and all of a sudden, because of one book, well, books are back, baby. You know, the sales are up. Things are looking good. You know, but long story short, no surprises from AAP in their numbers, including stats that show that digital audio is still surging. I'm not surprised by that. Some people may be a little bit, but audio, digital audio is up 37% over last year, just an astounding run for audiobooks. Uh, And ebook sales, which are showing signs of hitting their bottom, are down just 2.8% for 2018, for the first 11 months of 2018, I should say. And of course, bears repeating the difference. I'll say it again and again, bestsellers, bestsellers, bestsellers. Well, in fact, in Monday's issue, Andrew, PW traces exactly where those bestsellers are coming from. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, really interesting feature for sure based on PW's bestseller lists, which show uh, 20 available bestseller positions per week uh, from PW's four adult lists. That's hardcover nonfiction, hardcover fiction, trade paperback, and mass market. Uh, in all, that's about 2,080 hardcover positions and 2,080 paperback positions. And if there's one takeaway, writes uh, Publishers Weekly contributor Liz Hartman, it's what she calls a kind of electoral college versus popular vote discrepancy. Uh, and that comes with sort of the noise surrounding around certain books and then their actual performance numbers, uh, whether or not they actually win in the marketplace. And, and many of the books that one would have expected to sort of command this top of the list status, just looking at their gross sales uh, or books that we would have expected to last a little longer, uh, did not last long. So no one will be surprised to see Michelle Obama's becoming top of the list. As we've discussed, this whole 3.4 million copies. That's nearly three times as much as the number two title, which is The Magnolia Table by Joanna Gaines. But what might be a bit more surprising is that all these political Trump-inspired books that have really grabbed the lion's share of media attention and sold very well, we should add, and which had plenty of time to sort of stick on the lists, but they didn't. Our listeners might recall in January of last year, I said I'd eat my hat if we were still talking about Michael Wolf and Fire and Fury by March. And I'm happy to report I won't be eating my hat. <laughs> Neither Fire and Fury or uh, Fear by Bob Woodward, for that matter, nor James Comey's A Higher Loyalty, three of the big Trump-related books from 2018, none of them managed to, to stay on the list very long. They all came out of the gate really hot. They sold a combined 2.3 million copies. Michael Wolf hit a million copies. And they stayed on the hardcover bestseller list uh, at most for 15 weeks. Fire and Fury came the closest. It lasted uh, 14 weeks, I think. But you know, putting me in danger of eating my hat, I might add. But alas, you know, that book has since dropped off the radar. We really aren't talking about it much anymore. You know, and, and the inter interesting part of the feature for me, too, is how it illustrates that in the book business now, size really does matter. Because the big five publishers continue to dominate the bestseller list. In 2018, they owned 92.5% of the slots on the PW's bestseller lists. You know, that's a six percentage point increase over 2017. And it's led, of course, by the big player in the field, and that's Penguin Random House, uh, which has dominated the bestseller list since its merger, understandably. You put two of the big six together, so what you get. Uh, but since the merger, PRH has been understandably owning the list. They claimed 38.3% of the year's bestsellers. Uh, and that's like almost 20 points ahead of second place HarperCollins. So lots to chew on with this feature. It's really interesting to see where and what these bestsellers are and, and where they're coming from, I should add. Uh, and readers can check out that feature on the PW site or in the print edition of uh, PW on Monday. When CCC's Beyond the Book returns, Andrew Albanese checks in for a flight to Seattle. I'm Christopher Kinneal. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly and host of the new PW podcast, Publishers Weekly Insider. Each week, we'll talk to PW editors, authors, and other industry guests about the biggest and most exciting stories and books in the world of publishing. New episodes of PW Insider premiere every Friday. So listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwinsider or wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to subscribe to PW Insider on iTunes.
I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's Beyond the Book. It's Friday, January 18th, 2019, and Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly joins me today as he does each week with the latest news from the world of books and publishing. And Andrew, you will travel next week to Seattle, where you're going to attend the American Library Association Midwinter Meeting. What are you expecting to see and hear when you're there, and how is 2019 shaping up for libraries? Yeah, so you know the first big meeting of the year for libraries, and I'll be there. It'll be in Seattle, one of my favorite cities to visit in America. And I'll just say now, if you're there too, please come find me. Uh, Publishers Weekly will have a booth there. I think it's booth 2021 on the exhibit floor. I'll be stopping in and out of there intermittently. Love to hear from you if you're there. Uh, so first, what am I expecting from the meeting? Well, few things stand out to me. The first is the opening keynote, uh, which is from Melinda Gates, you know, home game for Melinda Gates. They're based in Seattle, Microsoft based in Seattle, and one of the world's greatest, if not the greatest philanthropist, Melinda Gates, a winner of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Uh, Gates also has a memoir coming out this year from Macmillan, but I'm really hoping she talks about the work that the Gates Foundation did with libraries over the last decade, and which is wrapping up, which has just wrapped up, actually. And I also hope that she talks a little bit about our sort of societal and political challenges. So uh, that's sort of a highlight for me. I know we're uh, in the shadow of Amazon in Seattle, but, you know, like I said, Microsoft and the Gates Foundation is also local to the mid, uh, Pacific Northwest. So I look forward to hearing from Melinda Gates. You know, the second thing I'm really looking at is books, uh, which may sound odd to say about libraries, but you know, in Monday's issue, PW columnist Sari Feldman uh, sort of urges ALA not to overlook the central role books play in the library enterprise. And you know, odd because that may seem obvious, right? When you think of a library, you think of books. But Sari rightly notes that the, the way libraries have expanded and transformed their services these days, and they serve so many roles in their communities these days that you know, aside from the main stage speakers at the midwinter meeting and at any ALA conference, really, and the publisher booths, which are all over the exhibit halls, the most popular destination in the exhibit halls, the book programming has actually declined in the ALA's professional programming. Now, make no mistake, books are still going to be prominent at ALA, ALA as always, but Sarah's point is well taken, especially as librarians, you know, we do gather in the shadow of Amazon here in Seattle. You know, librarians really can't take their role in the book ecosphere for granted, not in this age when there are so many ways for readers to engage with books and other entertainment. Uh, and yes, libraries are doing great things in their communities in a number of ways, but Sarah's point is, you know, let's not cede the book space to Goodreads. Uh, I think she makes a compelling argument, and that's in Monday's issue of Publishers Weekly. And finally, a topic we've discussed quite a a bit about here recently, and that's ebooks, especially in light of the tour embargo last year, which we should be hearing some more information about shortly, and Penguin Random House's uh, changing its digital its terms for digital lending. You know, this week Overdrive, which is the leading vendor for, for libraries when it comes to ebooks, released its top circulating ebook libraries, and their data shows that ebooks and libraries are still on the rise, although the rate of growth noticeably has, has slowed once again. Now, you'd expect that because, you know, as the business matures, uh, you know, the growth gets smaller, right? Remember, back in the day, consumer ebooks used to post triple digit growth regularly. But a decade later, 
consumer ebooks are now showing declines. In fact, they've been showing declines for the past four years running. Now, publishers seem intent on changing the way libraries are handling ebooks. Uh, so, my question really is simply this. Are they going to screw up the library market like they screwed up the consumer market too? Uh, you know, I'll be speaking at a seminar at midwinter, and I'll try to ask that question with a little more tact. But I look forward to reporting on what I'm hearing from libraries uh, about how ebooks are faring in there for them, and also from publishers about what they may have in store. And of course, Andrew, I and the listeners know you really enjoy that library beat, and we're going to be hearing about the library community from you throughout the coming year. So, any other specific opportunities or challenges for libraries? libraries in 2019 that you're watching? Yeah, always. Always both. Always challenges and always opportunities. And you're, you're right. I always really look forward to my reporting on the library B. And uh, it's really going to be fun to look at to, after this first conference of the year to look back on how librarians are feeling about last year and what they're looking forward to for 2019. And I can tell you off the top of my head, first and foremost, because this has happened for the last two years, librarians are going to have to fight off the Trump administration's bid uh, to eliminate their federal funding. I fully expect when the administration really is its budget blueprint next month that they're going to once again call for virtually all library funding to be eliminated. Now, thankfully, Congress does not seem inclined to follow that suggestion, uh, but next month, you can expect it. Trump is once again going to issue that call. You know, I think we can also expect some action in the copyright realm, which will always, which is always fun to follow. Uh, I think largely driven by events abroad, though. For example, the EU is considering a pretty major revision to its copyright laws, uh, one that's very controversial. And the fate of that effort is likely going to start spurring some movement in the U.S. as well. Now, we have a lot of things going on in the U.S., you know, Robert Mueller being <laughs> one of them. So it's unclear as to whether or not copyright is going to be a hot button issue for Congress or something that they're going to jump on. Uh, nevertheless, I do expect there to be some proposals coming out. Also, there is the Europe-based plan called Plan S, which is angling towards achieving open access to scholarly research by 2020. Uh, that would, of course, reverberate throughout the world in the United States as well. Uh, and of course, there's going to be the ongoing challenges we seem to be facing for the last few years of fake news, or the impact of social media and privacy. Libraries are deeply involved in arguing for people's privacy rights. And, you know, I do expect that these issues are going to be heating up in Congress, that at some point we are going to be talking about what good regulation of the tech community looks like. Uh, how far or how, quick, how quickly that advances remains to be seen. So, Hard to predict what's going to happen in 2019, uh, especially when it comes to libraries. But I think I can safely predict that 2019 is going to be unpredictable. <laughs> and for libraries, it all gets kickstarted next week in Seattle. Well, they call it the Emerald City, Andrew. And I'll admit, I'm a little green with envy. Enjoy your trip there. And thanks for joining me every Friday on CCC's Beyond the Book. My pleasure, as always. Up next on Beyond the Book, after a long period of lobbying and legislative horse trading in Brussels and Strasbourg, the European Commission's Directive on Copyright in the Digital Single Market is days away from final approval. Article 13 of the directive, sometimes called the YouTube tax, could require certain types of online services to take proactive steps to license copyrighted material or else keep it off their services. It will take years to figure out what types of technologies or enforcement schemes may be acceptable or required in EU member states. This week at the annual Copyright and Technology Conference in New York, a panel of European lawyers got a head start in predicting the implications of Article 13, and not only for Europe. As attorney Chris Time from the Netherlands told me, Article 13 may prove unlucky for YouTube 
well beyond the EU. The law will apply of the country where I seek my protection. So if I'm in the Netherlands and somebody in the US has uploaded my protected content on YouTube, but it violates my rights in the Netherlands, I can sue that person directly in the Netherlands for copyright violation for an act that is in itself not contrary to US copyright law. Article 13, an unlucky number for YouTube. Next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center. Our co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. Subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The complete Beyond the Book podcast archive is available at beyondthebook.com. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening and join us again soon on CCC's Beyond the Book. Mm -hmm.